0: I have been reading and rereading a novel called River by Esther Kinsky. It's one of those books that makes me want to move slowly. I keep putting the book down to write my own memoirs or just let the pages fall through my fingers and wander off into my own reminiscences. In the book, the narrator tells us of a series of journeys through London, mostly its east, where the River Lee runs into the Thames which in turn travels eastwards to the sea. She is a stranger, surrounded by strangers, drifters and market vendors, pious Jews and Croatian refugees, all bound up in a network of alienating city streets, a metropolis that suppresses the natural landscape. So I am remembering the version of London that I once knew, if only briefly, and even more of an outsider. With a grimace, I remember the gloomy evening in South Wimbledon where I was welcomed by a friend of a friend with the words I don't have no food or nothing. I remember Mayfair where I roamed around toting my oversized backpack like I was a very lost adventurer come to explore the hoity-toity shops. I smoked joints out the window of an apartment and later jumped in the car of a Russian madman called Vartan. Who shouted at bartenders and reversed at top speed down some inner city alleyway? I remember drinking cider at the Euston tap on summer afternoons, in the sun, having knocked off from hours of poring over dusty manuscripts in the British Library, and swimming in the Tooting Beck Lido, that unexpected pool of gorgeous cool water near a row of Indian and Pakistani restaurants and within walking distance of where I slept on the floor of the share house my cousin lived in. Later, with a lover, I took a long flight to London, on which we were underfed and by the time we landed I had a shocking crick in my neck and I knew the relationship was already over. Exhausted, we got to her father's apartment and slept in separate beds. It was about as sad as I've ever been, and the days that followed forced me into long and luckless journeys on foot, hoping to find the inspiration to finish a book-length bit of writing that I already believed was as doomed as this intercontinental love affair. At some point we went together to the Hackney playing fields and sat facing north, watching various loosely ruled games take place more or less in silence until I asked her to confess that she had no feelings of romance left in her, not for me at least. And that is how it was, and a single tree on the boundary of the fields was shaking like a chihuahua, and I let myself be cut adrift and cast my thoughts to the weeks ahead to travel elsewhere whilst she fell into another's arms. to get it off my chest. I wrote all this in an email to a man I knew who was originally from London. It must have come across as fairly eccentric because he was just a magazine editor who I'd met only once. Yet I wrote to him that when he next looked at a map of that old city he should seek out hackney playing fields and mark it down as somewhere that my heart broke. Despite the unexpected tone and content of what I'd written to him, the bloke replied. There are neighbourhoods of London, he said, that I can't even bear to think of. Whole sections of the city that are blacked out for me, shadowed by all the melancholy memories. Women and men I've left behind. Days and nights of humiliation and shame, not to mention moments of violence and fear. To even see this or that street, or such and such lane, is to remind myself of how a life is cobbled together from bits of suffering, the bric-a-brac of our most hopeless feelings. Our personal histories are an absolute hodgepodge of places and people, a past made like the bricks of London, of the lowest substances, of unctuous sticky clay, of various colours, pulled together as if at random. And you know some day it will all be reduced to rubble. And perhaps some poor mug will pick through the debris with a plan to reuse it. And my God, how desperate you must be to want to make anything out of all we've left behind. Such was his reply. I sent him a pitch for his magazine. What if I went on a pub crawl and asked the patrons of every hotel to mark on a map the place that was most heavily burdened with their grief. At the White Hart Inn in Whitechapel, a woman called Alžbeta, who was a mathematician and a dancer, put a sticker on a corner of Slovakia and began to tell her story. In my email inbox was already a note from the magazine editor. No thanks, not for this issue anyway but Aljbeta's story was told nevertheless. And oddly, on my own personal map of London, there at the White Hart Inn in Whitechapel, I marked out my happiest afternoon. For at those coordinates of longitude and latitude, two strangers were able to share their sadness, and thus they relieved each other of some of the sorrow. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine asked me to send her my address so that she might put it into Google Maps and have a squiz at where I live. May as well, I figured. It's not likely that she's going to be visiting me anytime soon. Down here, we're still fairly isolated from the rest of the world, and the expanse of land and ocean between myself and so many mates, which looks pretty bloody overwhelming even at the best of times is currently impossible to traverse. So instead, my friend, will plug in the coordinates at which I mostly rest my head at night and see a satellite picture of my shack, a view of the roof, I guess, and the yard around it, the path that runs up to it and beyond it, and the canopies of the trees. I remember the first time I looked at where I lived in something like Google Maps or Street View. I guess it was nearly a decade ago now. Likewise, with someone from overseas, and I suppose it felt strange to have these representations put in front of us. So near, yet so far from the real thing. Like I could have someone visit but could not show them hospitality. In that respect, a map can be a bit like a portrait of a lover a plaster cast of an idol. It represents certain features and brings satisfaction to the eyes, but what it does to the imagination is less simple to define. All sorts of emotions might come to the surface at the merest glimpse of such pictures. As the poet Petrarch commissioned a portrait of his lover Laura and felt her aspect in that sketch assuaged some anguish in him. So I might, in the depths of distance from my island, have once whipped up a map, captured its slopes and creeks, only to find the contentment it brought ever so brief. That the map may match the landscape perfectly, but still be a faulty reproduction. My collect maps have several boxes of them under the couch here, from all over the world, and from all sorts of eras, too. Outdated European maps with obsolete borders, maps of cities that have since doubled in size, maps of lands where the language has changed or over which some occupying power has relinquished its hold. Of course, I also try and keep a collection of up-to-date maps in official editions of the places where I go bushwalking. These I actually use for navigating. But a lot of the pleasure of my map collection is aesthetic, imaginative. Or, if I pretend what I'm doing is actually work, we might say that they are for research purposes. One of my favourite maps I got from a tip shop. It's a representation of my local neighbourhood, 1 to 25,000, so quite close up, laminated and dated to the 80s. Determined from aerial photographs taken in February 1985, and verified by Field Inspection in November 1986, it says. So before I moved here, before I was born, in fact, but I think I would still very much enjoy the role of Field Inspector, following this nearly 40-year-old map around the region, seeing what still stands and what doesn't. Thus I let my eye travel the road towards where I live, through dozens of thin rectangular tracts of property in the village, Fictitious lines that may or may not have fences around them in reality. I follow a gentle bend and then take the gravel track which leads to where I'm sitting right now. The ponds and streams around me are recorded. The neighbours' houses marked as black dots. But the train carriage is nowhere to be seen. Suggesting that my shack hadn't yet been brought up here. So I suppose in its place were shrubs and grasses. Perhaps saplings of the dogwoods or wattles around me and other plants which must have been crushed when the wagon was eventually put in place. I reckon the biggest change that I would notice in my role as Johnny-come-lately-field inspector would be the dam, which on contemporary maps is portrayed as a giant blue splotch in the middle of everything, but had not yet been built in the mid-80s. So instead I can see several paddocks and a sawdust heap, You don't see that many maps that record sawdust heaps, do you? But anyway. After that, I guess I would observe two big changes in land use. One, the extension of conservation areas and national parks in this area. And two, the extension of forestry operations in this area. Each of these, of course, in real life was hotly debated. They have prompted protests, debates, council meetings, town gatherings, acts of sabotage, and... Heaps of gossip. But in the end, from map to map, these landscapes have been altered by the decisions made about what to do with the land. I'm thankful that not a lot has changed. But each adjustment that has been made has meant a lot to many of the people who have lived through them. I turn from the 80s map to the latest edition. And, as always, feeling somewhat morose about the future of our planet, I wonder what is next. What changes will be wrought on this neck of the woods that might upset or infuriate me, change my plans, imbalance my dreams? I wonder if I will one day look upon the maps that are current and think that was the landscape as I once loved it. Because like any portrait, a map is only a momentary likeness. Land can indeed change beyond recognition. And in fact, that seems to be the subject of the greatest theme in most of our lifetimes. Some years back I took a trip on the ferry that travels backwards and forwards across Bass Strait, the spirit of Tasmania. It was the evening sail, and of course I hadn't allowed myself to pay extra for a bunk, so knowing I'd be sleeping rough, I made my way up to deck nine and had the bartender pour me a glass of Pinot Noir. In the corner of my eye I noticed a woman of maybe eighteen years of age sitting at one of the tables with enormous sheets of butcher's paper stretched out before her and beside her, on both sides, paper in piles, these sheets in sheaves, sticking out her satchel, scraps stuffed into her pockets. Her face was pale, and her forehead produced curls of strawberry blonde above furrowed brows, with ever so shallow wrinkles. With utter intent she was bent over these sheets, Eyebrows knit, brown-green irises piercing through the lenses of her specks. I watched her mark the papers. She traced lines, shaded patches in colour, consulted the documents to her left and her right and made minute alterations to what was on the table before her. Sometimes I feel my line of work gives me an excuse to read over the shoulders of strangers. So I chose a seat near to the young woman and tried to look sidelong at her work. Much of what was around her was indecipherable, but what she was currently labouring on seemed simply to be a picture of a forest — at first. There were lime-green leaves like those of eucalypts in late sunlight, and the red-gold feathers of casuarina trees, and the silhouette of a cockatoo or a kestrel or a currawong. But the horizon was not horizontal, and there were all manner of lines and squares, green-blue waves, blank spots filled with surrealist symbols, arrows pointed to the tree trunks and the leaves and the clouds. I squinted and saw the title of her picture. It said, Bass Strait. The woman looked up at me and said, This was how it used to be. She said it with such conviction that for a second I believed that she had been there back then. But it was 10,000 years ago, so maybe not. Yes, there had been low land where our ferry now floated. Technically the land is still there, just covered over with water to a depth of about 50 metres, I think. But back then an ancient cold had locked the water into ice, and held it hostage at higher elevations. He could walk over those plains for days. Quite a few millennia earlier, the first migrants had made their way down what was then a peninsula, adapted to new country and made a home. Then that passage was submerged. The glaciers receded without purpose into the ocean. A global spill made the water levels rise again. And now we floated on, And this woman looked at me firmly and said, I am making a map of the world. But not a map of the world as it is now. A map of the world as it has been. As it could have been. As it may yet become. Soon she explained that the concept of this map had come from sunsets outside her house on the northwest coast, where she'd walk barefoot down to the gnarled lumps of metamorphic rock on the shoreline, the oldest exposed rocks on this island. She'd smile and think, so this used to be Tasmania. That this small geological sample became an island, she explained, is a product of chance and much time. She wanted to map out the various possibilities, she said. How tectonic plates might have turfed us up in some other quadrant of the globe. How different plants would have evolved had we landed at a different latitude, or crashed into some other continent. How our colonial history might have been different. And that had got her wondering if she could also map out the way things might go. If the temperature of the ocean rises a few degrees more, say. Or if the island has a population boom. How it might change if noxious weeds got out of her garden. If she had children if she died. And now I've met you, she went on to say. So whole new variabilities will come into play. But of course I won't ask you too many questions, she said. I could never complete all this anyway. It's just a way to help pass ten hours on Bass Strait. Because a map like that would sink the ship... It'd wind up bigger than the world. Because I can build in the present and into the future, she said. But I can't build into the past. I don't have a smartphone, so when I travel, I sketch out my own maps, copied from other sources. Websites, tourist brochures, the atlas. My versions are reduced in scale and size so that they might fit on the minuscule pages of my pocketbook, pared-down editions of the originals, containing only the information necessary for me to get to a destination so a city becomes a series of interconnected squiggles of ink, marked with the names of roads and shopfronts in my infinitesimal handwriting. A metro station, a temple, a KFC outlet. All of these can become the landmarks that lead me along to whatever it is I'm trying to find, newly arrived in one or another of the world's urban centres. And if sometimes I have to drive somewhere I'm not sure about, I'll write the directions on my left hand, in that soft bit of flesh between the thumb and index finger. And as I steer through traffic, I'll consult this tally of turn-offs. It's an interesting technique because it converts a map into something non-graphic. Horizontal. Then again, the projection that most of us are used to when it comes to looking at maps is a pretty unusual way to see the world too. I suppose it's meant to be the view of a god. Conveniently all-encompassing, looking downwards from the clouds, the planet's contours flattened, the continents clearly defined by shorelines even as the tides change the land's boundaries. But how confusing is it to position two perspectives perpendicular, as with the map of the world in my bedroom, the horizonless earth on a horizontal wall? The bloke who's often given the credit for making the first bird's-eye-view map of that kind was a Greek intellectual named Anaximander. Like most of his neighbours, Anaximander thought that the extent of the habitable earth was more or less the Mediterranean. Around that was a circular barrier of water, a river called Ocean. You wouldn't want to navigate by his map these days, not even around southern Europe but at that stage in history it must have taken some imagination to portray land and sea from this top-down viewpoint. Perhaps Anaximander had scaled some Ionian mountain and extrapolated from that, for there were no satellites then, no aeroplanes. Of his compatriots, only Icarus, I suppose, had actually flown, had surveyed the world with a bird's-eye view. And that had not ended so well. But more ancient maps existed, perhaps before humans could even have conversation. In fact, I sometimes wonder if maps aren't the origins of language. What would a band of humans want to communicate more than the locations of danger and opportunity? I think of the chains of poetry that ancient communities cultivated, those epic maps of words that linked up across great expanses. Maps, I suspect, are not primarily documents of information, though. They are visual portrayals of our dreams, biases, memories, emotions, fantasies and fears. Which makes the pragmatic act of touring unknown places with a GPS, of becoming the blue dot that floats through the earth guided by satellites, less and less appealing for me. The satellite, like so much in modern life, intends to participate in the representation of everything. It is greedy for information. It is authoritarian, and wants to make other mapping techniques obsolete. But it sometimes seems to me that the geopositioner's view is too broad, that it is not particular enough. And even then there is a slippage to be seen. The cartographer's biases are still evident. Why can I navigate my way around a city by a KFC and not a significant tree? In trying to represent the entire planet, it sometimes fails to locate us at all, and not just when the signal drops out. I am nevertheless drawn to every map I see, and could fill whole galleries with them. I find that even the most basic map bears witness to certain locations to which I've attached precious memories, even those I've never been to before. And this despite the fact that the image itself may demonstrate nothing of what I know of those places. But in this, the maps are no different to an Axamander's. I likewise find myself focusing inevitably on whatever matters to me in that moment. It's as if I've placed a ring around it and called it the centre of the world. Inside my train carriage, I find myself plotting out innumerable journeys that I will never undertake. Never mind the travel restrictions. If I were to try and make all these imaginary excursions, I would need a thousand lifetimes. Is it normal that every location I see should tether itself to my heart, as if it too were a map, with toponyms typed all over it? This started early, when I first stretched an atlas out in front of me and became entranced with the talismanic names that were scattered throughout the continents. But it was not simply that I was drawn to the exotic titles that titillated my childish imagination. It was that I'd finished my first trip outside of Tasmania and had realised that the earth was a grand, diverse neighbourhood. A series of real places loosely bound but connected to one another. Much like the word Tasmania. And I was yet to learn that this was exciting to others as well. These place names had meanings. They stood in spots that people and other creatures called home. When I was a lad there was this computer game called Age of Empires in which you played as an ancient culture trying to raid the land for its resources and dominate the neighbouring tribes, and in doing so you built what was there called civilization. Starting out, you began with only a few unskilled and superstitious labourers in a small patch of land surrounded by total darkness. Then these villagers would dig for minerals and chop down trees, and eventually they might be able to establish academies and barracks. But you could also send out pioneers into the unknown land around them, clicking your mouse on the darkness so that each black square would be peeled back at their approach. Here you would find more resources, some wildlife to hunt, and other communities on whom you might declare war, intending to reprieve them of what they had. In this way, it seems that cartography has long been one of the favorite occupations of colonists. Explorers were sent out to claim the landscapes under shadow and subsequently erase the local names. And so too some of the histories that indigenous communities had in their lands. The country's features and characteristics were recorded, with theodolites and chains and trigonometrical equations and other forms of estimation. In what they called Van Diemen's Land, where I now live, the British had an accurate outline of the coast within a couple of decades. They'd mapped many of the mountains, most of the rivers, and the majority of the flatter eastern hemisphere of the island. But the southwest remained uncertain terrain. In 1824, a surveyor named Thomas Scott produced a map that seemed to portray the psychic effect the Southwest had on the colonists. Where everywhere else was shaded and cross hatched and decorated with lines of every kind, the bottom left quarter of the island was left blank but for a single word Transylvania. It practically said, Here be dragons. And it's true. The southwest was full of danger. There were the serious threats from disaffected humans, absconded bushrangers and the Aboriginal resistance. There was treacherous scrub, all sorts of spiky bushes and robust, far-reaching vines. The topography was always challenging. Deep gullies succeeded knobbly ridgelines and what seemed to be benign plains were often endless button-grass bogs. The weather came in hard, with heavy winds knocking over enormous trees and great dumps of rain that put the rivers in instant flood. Snow could fall at any time of the year, or else it might be thirty degrees when invariably water sources would suddenly disappear. Southwest Tasmania was a dark, precarious place for a transplanted white fella to exist. It was scary. So it's little wonder this surveyor called it Transylvania. But in the box of maps I keep under my couch, of course I have one that shows a section of the Transylvanian Alps. Typically I bought it from a bloke called Vlad. He and I sat down over a glass of wine in the charming old town of Sibiu and traced out the hiking routes throughout the Carpathian Range. We pulled up the website for a European weather service, which showed a reproduction of the same map, scoured with lines and arrows and moving shadows, showing forecasts for wind and rain. I wondered how it would feel to be at certain points on that map, looking down at the particular set of contours climbing up towards the scudding clouds, finding wildflowers and insects in hidden positions not easily seen on any of the maps at hand. As it turned out, the walk was fun. Hot, hard work, followed by a wet trudge down to a lake that was supposed to be picturesque, but I simply couldn't see it. There were beautiful sunsets, and I cooked polenta dinners on a metho stove next to an old shepherd's hut. A landscape feature was indeed called the Dragon's Window, and when in its vicinity I heard a vulture call, I thought I might have encountered the prehistoric monster after all. When at last I reached the summit of Varfu Moldoviano, the country's highest peak, I scanned the horizon and squinted my eyes. I was looking for some hint of southwestern Tasmania. But No. There was no sign of sassafras or myrtle. Black creeks or white walking tracks over quartzite ridges. Wedge-tailed eagles circling in the skies. Likewise, when I have ascended to the highest elevation in Tasmania, I have done a slow 360 and wondered if anything I could see was in any way reminiscent of Transylvania. What I've seen instead is a series of landscapes, seemingly never-ending, layered on top of each other, in shades of blue which the cartographers have ignored. This is the shadow country, the opaque realm of the unknown. Armed with maps, I make occasional excursions out there, but I'm no explorer. At last I am happy to let most of such territory remain unvisited.